Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Welcome back to another episode of C is for Creepy. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode, which is the letter R. Yes, it is. As always, just want to take a second to thank all of our listeners. Um, this week, I actually got our first fan gift. Oh. Yep. Um, Lori, shout out. She made me a little sign and she gave me a crystal that says to it oh so that's in reference to our i'll get to it <laughs> that's amazing so i just wanted to sh- send like give her a shout out really appreciate that oh that's so awesome yes all right so let's just get right into this week what is your letter r i know earlier this week you um gave me some mystery of what it is so what is it so this week for r i'm gonna be covering ransom notes Ooh. so i'm back at it again with my fun facts (laughs) is there a britannica dictionary Mm, not britannica but according to mylawquestions.com Ah, ransom note can be defined as a note or brief letter demanding payment for the return of a hostage. Most ransom notes contain the following, making the ransomee aware of their loved one's hostage situation, the threat to that loved one's safety, a demand for the return of the hostage, and instructions of how and when the ransom must be paid. Competent ransom notes are brief to the point and have clear instructions, deadlines, and consequences if any deviation is made. Okay. Most also advise victims not to go to the police, media, or other legal authority. Some perpetrators force the hostage to write or sign these notes as proof that they are alive but in danger. Other proof of life or proof that the hostage is captive might be photographs, locks of hair, or pieces of the hostage. So like fingers, ears, mm-hmm. that kind of fun stuff. Okay. People being kidnapped for ransom has taken place throughout history, including names such as Julius Caesar. In 75 BCE, Caesar was kidnapped by pirates who informed the nobleman that his ransom amount was sent to 20 talents. Do you know what a talent is? No. I didn't either. Uh, a talent is a unit to measure gold. Like, so in this case, it refers to the mass of the gold. Okay. Okay. A talent converter I found on juliansbriggs.co says that 20 talents of gold would be worth, would be like 1,496 pounds of gold. So that's okay. worth about $40 million. Ooh. When told this, the 25-year-old Caesar laughed and advised the pirates that 50 Italians would be more appropriate for him. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not vain at all. Well, the same calculator said that 50 talents of gold would be worth would be 1.67 tons, <laughs> and that would be valued at 1 million US dollars. Okay. So the ransom was paid after 38 days of 50 talents. 
And Caesar was able to send military ships after the pirates and capture them and put them to death. But still, I just love being, I would love to have the confidence in that situation. Right? Uh, 40 million. I'm actually worth 100 million. Yeah. Get your worth. Get your money's worth. (laughs) Right? Oh, man. That is, that is gold. (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, so let's move on to actual notes. Like, no more history. The, well, some history. The first ransom note in the United States seems to be from a kidnapping in 1874. It was a handwritten note riddled with spelling errors. (laughs) Although multiple notes were sent to the family, it is not known if the ransom was paid or if the culprits were ever apprehended. So they just found this note and said this is the first one? Well, the, the first recorded one in U.S. history okay so like and it was clearly a ransom note it was very poorly misspelled but it was like i've got your son he's gonna die unless you give me this money okay essentially long and short not verbatim so i don't know about you but my first thought when it comes to like ransom notes is an image of the note with like the magazines like the cuttings the words where there's different letters and words yeah That wouldn't necessarily come to my mind at the beginning, but I definitely see how it could. So, the person sending the note will most likely attempt to disguise their handwriting to prevent their crime from being linked back to them. Even before clippings were used, those who wrote ransom notes did what they could to hide their identity by using typewriters. This backfired as typewriters were easily traceable, since even though the components were machine-made, they were assembled by hand, leading to variations in each machine, which I thought was very fascinating. (laughs) Did you fall down a rabbit hole? I did, yeah. Okay, I like it. Okay. After it was found that these ransom notes could be traced if the note was typed on a typewriter, that's kind of when the introduction of using other, like, newspapers or magazines, other written word to form Mm -hmm. ransom notes was started okay there are ways though to trace these notes back to kidnappers in various ways even if the note was typed or if there was clippings being used forensic linguists might look for spelling errors in the note and ask suspects to write notes to see if the misspelled words match which has actually happened in a few cases Because, like, if somebody's going to misspell that word, there's a really good chance that that's how they're always going to spell that word. Unless you're me, that will misspell the same word six different ways. Pomegranate. Oh, no. Mm -mm. Not even going to try on air. I'll just be mocked. Right? (laughs) I don't think I've ever spelled pomegranate the same way twice. No. (laughs) Not that I write it very often, but you know. (laughs) You used to. I used to. Okay. Other aspects... A forensic linguist might look for is stylistic patterns, punctuation, and syntactic structure. Another job given to the forensic linguist is determining if what is written in the note is true or false. There have been instances where the kidnapper will lie about the safety of the hostage in order to secure funds or what, in my opinion, is worse, there's been instances where people not involved with the kidnapping 
will send a ransom note to extort money from the vulnerable family. Ooh. Which is so greasy. Yeah. Other evidence can be found on a ransom note as well. So this includes DNA evidence, fingerprints, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Materials such as paper, ink, and postage can be traced if they are uncommon. I am going to cover handwriting analysis at some point, but if the notes are handwritten, a lot can be discerned, such as like personality traits, like what their state of mind is uh, when they're writing those ransom notes. Mm-hmm. Super fascinating. Like it can determine the level of confidence that they have in their crime, if they're determined like it gets really into it it's so cool but i'll cover that another time (laughs) i like it okay so on to my case this week i'm going to be covering the abduction and ransom of marion parker and i would like to say that i did give courtney the option Mm -hmm. between this case and another one and she didn't know what i was covering but this one is the darker of the two yes So I'm keeping my trend with fucked up cases from the 1920s. Um, So prepare yourself. I got my wine. Okay, let's get into it. Perry Marion Parker married Geraldine Heisel in 1906. Parker was a successful banker and the couple lived in Los Angeles, California. In January 1907, the couple welcomed a boy and eight years later... In 1915, Geraldine birthed twin daughters named Marjorie Helen and Marion Frances Parker. The family lived in an affluent area on a quiet residential street where there was virtually no crime. It was impossible for the family to know the horror to come. It was December 15, 1927 in sunny Los Angeles when an unknown man walked into the Mount Vernon Junior High School. The man was well-dressed and well-spoken. He did not seem to be a threat by any account. The man told the office staff at the school that he was a Mr. Cooper and that his employer, Perry Parker, had been in, in an automobile accident and had asked for the Parker girl. He also offered to give the phone number to the bank he worked at to corroborate his story. That is a very confident person. How he presented himself to the office staff, and some say it was just like the administrator, the other reports say it was a teacher that actually spoke to him, but they're like, well, this person obviously is supposed to be here. Well, he knows all the names. He has all the places. He has the phone numbers. Uh And so they never called the bank to verify his story. Hmm. So reports do vary here. Some sources say that he knew Marion's name, but was surprised when asked which Parker girl he meant, since, of course, there was twins. Other reports say that Mr. Cooper asked for the younger one, indicating once again that he did not know that there were twins. (laughs) So when asked, like, which girl? What What do you mean, the younger one? Well... If their father was just in a car accident, wouldn't you assume both of them should be leaving? You would assume that. But the man allegedly corrected himself, saying that he had meant to say the smaller one instead of the younger one, which is worse. Mm-hmm. 
the school's office register found the man to be sincere, and so had the secretary fetch Marion. According to Not Just Evil by David Wilson, Mr. Cooper had bent over to tell 12-year-old Marion what had happened to her father, but said, quote, Don't cry, little girl. I will take you to your daddy, end quote. The man and child went into a dark-colored coupe and drove off. Hmm. Later that day, Geraldine was concerned when Marjorie arrived from home from school, but there was no sign of Marion. The concerned mother telephoned her daughter's friends, asking if they had seen her daughter, but no one knew where Marion was. When Perry Parker called the school to inquire about his daughter, that's when they realized that something horrible had happened. Ooh. Parker phoned the police to report Marion is missing, but later that evening, a telegram arrived at the family home. Mm-hmm. It was addressed to P.M. Parker, and the writer advised that he had Marion. It also implied that there would be more correspondence to come. The telegram was signed, George Fox. Okay. On December 16th, the next day, more telegrams arrived at the Parker residence, and a letter arrived as well. Telegrams as in plural? Yes, there was multiple. Okay. It's like when somebody sends a text, instead of like sending a very long text with all the information, it's like sending one after the other after the other after the other. Oh, man. <laughs> the letter had the word death written at the top of the page, but it, what is strange about that is that it was actually... Written in letters of the Greek alphabet. Oh, okay. It's not like it was the Greek word death, like, I can't say it, but it was like delta, the letters being used. So that's just weird. Yeah. In this letter, Fox finally made his demands known. He wanted $1,500 in $20 gold certificates. So for context... With inflation, that would only be worth about $22,900 today. Okay. Fox warned Parker about going to the police and advised the man to keep this private. Fox warned Parker that if he did not comply, no one would see his daughter again, except the angels in heaven. This time, he signed the letter, Fate. Does he have a god complex? I wouldn't say that. He, like, he's religious, or he turns religious, but I wouldn't say that he has a god complex. Okay. More telegrams arrived, and it finally, like, he finally sent the plan to exchange these gold certificates for the 12-year-old girl. So, Fox Fate had sent the instructions for Parker to meet him at 10th Street and Gramercy Place in Los Angeles. Parker, who had gathered 75 gold certificates, was smart, and he recorded the serial numbers on each of the bills, and was planning to give the information to the police after he made the exchange for his daughter. Smart. Right? I don't know if I would think to do that. Parker left his home at the prearranged time and went to the spot and waited for the exchange that was supposed to happen, but there was no sign of Marion. What Parker did not know was that the police had been watching the home 
and had found that the just like and had followed the distraught man to the location the kidnapper had seen the police presence and simply drove by shit (laughs) december 17th more telegrams arrived this one was signed by fake fox oh in these ff stated he was furious that the there was police involvement and that there were stories in the paper now about the abduction. FF claimed that Marion had witnessed the botched attempt and asked why her father did not help her. FF advised Parker that this would be the last day he had to make the exchange or Marion would be killed. Ooh. There was also a letter attached written by Marion pleading with her father to make the exchange without the police. This time, Parker went to the authorities and requested that he go alone out of fear for his daughter's life. The police agreed not to accompany Parker this time. Mm -hmm. If you hadn't followed the first time, you'd be good. Yeah. Following telegrams were sent by FF reminding the man he wanted his money and not he did not want to kill the girl. But he was also being left with very little choice. Another said that he was sly and he would watch for traps. He also threatened that a life hung by a thread and that he had a Gillette ready. It's like a razor. Mm-hmm. That evening, FF called the Parker home and gave the meeting instructions. The exchange would happen on the corner of West 5th Ave and South Manhattan Place. FF called at 7.15 and told Parker to leave with the money immediately. At 8pm, Parker arrived at the location and was approached by a man driving a Chrysler Coupe. In the passenger seat was a girl sitting with her head visible, but her body was covered by a blanket. The driver, whose face was covered, pulled up alongside Parker's car, but before the man could speak, the driver pulled off pulled a sawed-off shotgun out the window and pointed it at Parker. When Parker asked for his daughter, the driver told him that he would get her after he drove off a bit. So, the ex- so Parker handed over the money, and the Chrysler sped off. Driving about 100 feet forward... The car didn't even slow down as the assailant pushed Marion out of the moving vehicle. Parker rushed to his daughter and gathered her in his arms, but realized that his daughter was dead. Oh. This part is a bit graphic, so buckle up. The 12-year-old girl had been strangled, dismembered, and disemboweled. The man who performed the autopsy on Marion was actually the next-door neighbor of the family. Her arms had been disarticulated at the elbows. According to the report, her lower half, from a few inches beneath her belly button, was missing. It was estimated she had been dead for about 12 hours, meaning she would have been alive at the time of the first exchange attempt. As well... There was piano wire used to sew the girl's eyes open, possibly as an attempt to make her appear awake. Oh my god. The next day, the rest of Marion's remains were discovered in Elysian Park. 
There was multiple bundles wrapped in newspaper and tied with black thread that contained the missing girl's arms, legs, and lower half. What had not been released to the press was that her torso was stuffed with a t-shirt that said Gerber and a towel which was marked as Bellevue Apartments. Okay. The manhunt began. When the shocking details of the Marion of Marion Park's murder were released and motivated over 20,000 officers and volunteers to search for the monster who committed this crime. A reward of $50,000 was raised for the identification and arrest of the killer, dead or alive. Which is even more money than the killer got off with. Right? Could you imagine not, like, obviously we wouldn't ransom anybody, mm-hmm. but, like... For $1,500? Yeah. Like, that's... And then you do that to a kid? Right? You're fucked. No. No, no, no. So this amount was raised to $100,000, which had been, like, kind of crowdfunded by the public. Okay. The getaway car was discovered on December 20th, and the police were able to pull fingerprints off the door handle. Nice. There was also a towel, like, the towel that was stuffed inside Marion, mm-hmm. which led the police to Bellevue Arm Apartments. Police talked to a man that matched the description of the abductor, named, who called himself Donald Evans, who allowed them into his apartment 315. Donald Evans disappeared afterwards. Oh. In apartment 315, police found bloody footprints partially burnt drafts of ransom letters, and newspaper clippings regarding the kidnapping. Hmm. It was discovered that the man who kept changing his name was actually William Edward Hickman. Hickman was originally from Arkansas, but moved around during his childhood. In prior years, Hickman actually worked at the same bank as Perry Parker. It was discovered and reported by Parker that Hickman had been forging checks to the amount of $400. Ooh. Hickman lost his job at the bank because of this and was charged and incarcerated due to the crime. Mm-hmm. Hickman had been on a crime spree starting a month before the kidnapping, holding up gas stations and stealing cars. The prints from the previous car thefts and... Prince found on the abandoned Chrysler and the prints found on the ransom leader letter all matched. Nice. Now that the police had a face and a name, the hunt began in earnest. Hickman had gone north in a stolen green car and was seen in Oregon by a gas station attendant who reported the sighting to police after reading a newspaper the next day. The fugitive traveled further north into Washington state where he used two of the gold certificates at the local haberdashery. What is a haberdashery? <laughs> it's a local clothing store that also does repairs okay. for clothing. I just had to throw it in there because this is a dark case and that's a funny word. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so that happened on December 21st. Finally, on December 22nd, another sighting of Hickman prompted an all-points bulletin and police were stationed on roads east of Portland. After a car chase, Hickman was arrested the afternoon of December 22nd. After searching the car, police found 
$1,400 of the gold certificates given during the ransom. Nice. Now in custody, Hickman confessed to the kidnapping, writing the notes, and being there for the exchange, but claimed that a well-known pair of criminal brothers actually murdered Marion. Hmm. Since the brothers in question were in, were in prison at the time of the murder, this was impossible. Yep. Hickman told the police what happened. He said that he told Marion she was going to be ransomed, and then he took the girl to a movie. He had, like, kind of said that she was treating this like an adventure at first. Like, okay, well, this is something different. Like, okay. Like, this is something out of the movies. Remember, these. this is what he's saying. Yeah. Like, there's no way to know for sure. Afterwards, he took her back to his apartment, where he kept her tied to a chair for two days. He claimed that he had no intention of killing Marion, but when she realized his identity, he felt like he had no choice. I'm sorry. He had no intention, but he ended up doing that? That's what he claims. That's quite the escalation. I agree. Oh my god. Okay. I'm not here for it. Mm -mm. We could have gone with a different case, Courtney. <laughs> you know what? I'm allowed to be salty about his actions. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. He strangled the girl with a towel until she was unconscious, and then he moved her to a bathtub. Ugh. Sickeningly, he put on a record of Bye Bye Pretty Baby on his phonograph and listened to the song as he dismembered and disemboweled Marion. Was she alive? Worst of all, he did not know for sure if she was dead before he began dismembering her. Oh my god. What a disgusting human being. Right. Like, I don't know. So, definitely serial killers were big in, like, the 70s and 80s. Of that, there is no doubt. But, like, the most fucked up crimes to children happen in the 20s. Because there's other ones that I will eventually cover. But, I don't know. It's like the roaring 20s just got Ugh. to people. Gross. Yuck. Mm-hmm. Because Hickman wanted to collect the reward, he considered he might actually have to show her to, like, he might have to show her father that she's there. So he used makeup and sewed, sewed, sewed the girl's eyelids open and attempted to, to disguise her by covering the majority of her with a blanket. Hickman told the police, quote, she felt perfectly safe, and the tragedy was so sudden and unexpected that I'm sure she never actually suffered throughout the whole affair, except for a little sobbing, which she couldn't keep back for her father and mother, end quote. Ew. Yeah. Despite having originally telling police that he orchestrated the kidnapping as he needed the $1,500 to go to college, once the trial came, Hickman attempted to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm -hmm. This was actually the first attempt, like one of the first attempts in California for an insanity plea, which, because like it wasn't allowed until very recently. Mm -hmm. Despite this attempt, Hickman was sentenced to death in February 1928. Method of which would to be by hanging. Oh, fitting. His death took place October 19th, 
1928, at San Quentin Prison in California. His autopsy showed that he did not die from a broken neck, but instead from asphyxiation. And, like, I was reading reports it took him two minutes to die. Ooh. So. Hickman was 20 years old at the time of his death. What? Yep. So, he was 19 when he did that to her. Oh, he was executed quite quickly then. They did not fuck around back then when it came to executions. Okay. It was, like, generally less than a year. Wow. Back in the day. Which is problematic because if you arrest an innocent person and they're put to death, then Mm -hmm. there's no exoneration, right? Yeah. So... It makes sense nowadays why it takes longer, but yeah, no. Like, and he attempted to appeal it, and he had converted to Christianity while on death row. But it was really funny. He was asking, like, the psych wards, like, the guards, what do you think an insane person would look like? Ew. Yeah. So I wonder why he didn't get his insanity plea. Yeah. No. But that is... The case of Marion Parker and Branson notes for R. Wasn't yeah. very funny, but uh Yeah. That ugh, yuck. Yeah. I it's really too bad. There was another case I was gonna cover that wasn't an option that I gave you. Like mm. the names were so funny and we could have made so much fun during it, but the ending was worse in a different way. Oh. So so yeah. I take it you'll still cover it just at another time. Exactly. I yeah, like for it. a different, under a different name. But nice. Yes. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> you it know was... what? It was not as dark as I thought it would be. <laughs> I, when you give me the option of dark or not dark, I have to brace myself for people living in the walls. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it wasn't... Honestly, that one I found a little haunting. It'll sneak up on you. I don't know. I, like So I, I included a lot of pictures for you to see. Okay. But there was also photos I did not include, which included pictures of the corpse. And Oh. Yeah. Maybe it's because I haven't seen the pictures yet. But yeah, well, like, like I said, I didn't include those for you. I appreciate that. I did not want to see them myself mm-hmm. because they haunt me. <laughs> it it amazes me that like people can think of such fucked up shit to do to kids or just to people anybody. in general. And not to be too dark, but that's the tip of the iceberg. I know. Like people are pretty awful towards each other. Hot right. take. <laughs> But, like, I couldn't imagine thinking that, you know what, I'm going to kill you tonight. And then deciding to chop you up into itty-bitty pieces and leave you in a public park. Like, I feel like one is going from one extreme over the fucking edge extreme. Yeah. Well, like, I don't know, like, I wonder if he was stuffing her because... Like, her organs were missing, and he was trying to make her more lifelike. Like... Was there maybe some necrophilia maybe planning on happening? I... Maybe some Norman Bates? So, you know, actually... So, I wasn't going to include this, but during the autopsy, when the lower half was found, there was no sign of any sexual assault done. 
which is thankful. Mm-hmm. But no, he just well, and what a weird place because you would think usually arms legs head not cutting a torso in half no like well i think it would be less work than you would think well because you'd only have the spine to get through exactly so like because i like so when i first read it and it was like they found six body parts i was like trying to count like it's like the one two arms three (laughs) what's the other one but yeah yuck no people are fucked they are yes they are they're very creepy it's horrifying to think that you could just be host i think that's the worst part too is she was alive the day before i don't know if i would ever get over that right like if the police hadn't followed she would have been home safe Yes, but I think we also need to remember this is the 1920s. I get that. I get that. But, like, how do you reconcile that? Ugh. You don't. That's horrible. I... Ugh. I just, I don't understand it. And people make fun of us millennials who don't answer the door, don't answer the phone... Don't talk to people. Yeah. Like stranger danger, even though we are damn near 30. Mm-hmm. Look what happens when you don't stranger danger. Well, the only connection was this they guy worked. used to work with her father. Oh, God. Oh, God. I couldn't know. I don't know how you would ever send your kids to school again. Right? Knowing that, like, this fucker waltzed into school, didn't even know my daughter's name. Didn't know she was a twin. And still took her. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your story. That was a wild ride. Sure was. What is your R? My R is for Robert the Doll. Oh, yes. Yes. So today we will be discussing the eerie story behind Robert the doll. The dog. (laughs) I'm leaving that in. (laughs) The doll originally belonged to a child named Robert Eugene Otto, an artist described as an eccentric who belonged to a prominent Key West family. Sorry, I am out of breath from running up the stairs. (laughs) Never said I was a fit person. (laughs) (sighs) Okay. Robert the doll, appearing to be a simple, friendly toy, wearing the sailor suit once belonging to his now-deceased owner, was manufactured by the Steiff Company of Germany, purchased by Otto's grandfather while on a trip to Germany in 1904, and given to Eugene as a birthday gift. But there are some differing origin stories on how the doll came to be a part of Eugene's life. Another source mentioned that Robert was a voodoo doll made by a Haitian servant. The servant gave Robert to Eugene as an act of revenge against the autos for mistreating her. Wow. I, I've heard that story before, but every time I'm just like, ooh. Right? Like, I... That's why you don't mistreat other people. I agree. 
Y'all be nice to each other. Yeah. Do not cut anybody up. Just be nice to people. <laughs> That's the minimum, okay, guys? <laughs> like, you know... Well, I feel like that's not the minimum. I <laughs> know, but <laughs> just how you said that. I'm still salty. Be nice. <laughs> be nice to each other. Robert was said to be made with human hair and stuffed with straw. But a team from Key West Art and Historical Society gives Robert an annual examination to make sure he stays in good condition. The team recorded every detail about Robert. Robert's hair is not human hair. Oh, that's so lame. But most likely mohair. Mohair. I think it's like horse hair. Okay. I really should have Googled it, but I didn't. That's that's okay. (laughs) He is stuffed with a straw-like material and covered with felt. For those unfamiliar with Robert, he stands about three feet tall and weighs about six pounds. That's too tall for a doll. It really is. That's way too tall. (laughs) So, I am five foot tall. Yeah. He is over half as tall as me. Yeah, that's three Subway sandwiches tall. That is too tall. Subway sandwiches are only 11 inches. Okay, well, three plus a bit. (laughs) Yes. He has short blonde hair, black button eyes, and is dressed in a sailor suit, complete with a hat. He also holds a plush lion, who the museum staff named Leo, in his arms. I I wonder, a lion and a sailor, like, why would they be friends? Imagination of a child? I, I get that. I totally get that, but... I just enjoy that fact that it's a sailor holding a lion. <laughs> One would think it would be a fish. You would th- like or something nautical themed. <laughs> I agree. Eugene gave Robert the sailor suit that belonged to him when he was little. Oh, that's why. He also gave Robert his plush pet. Oh, okay, so we have Robert to blame for this. Eugene. Eugene, sorry. Yes. Eugene to blame for this. Yes. Eugene dressed the doll. Okay. I always thought that Robert was named Robert after the owner. I didn't well, his name is Robert Eugene Otto. Okay, that's, yes. So he, but he goes by, by Eugene, Eugene or Jean. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying <laughs> that because I'm like, I swear it's Robert and Robert, but yes. It is Robert and Robert. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Eugene named the doll Robert. The home where Eugene lived, now called the Artist House, is located at 534 Eaton Street, Key West, Florida, and was built between 1890 and 1898. It was here that Eugene was given Robert the doll, and their bond was forged. Okay. Okay. I would absolutely <clears throat> love to come and see this. Yeah, but like, you've got a kid. What if she bonded with a doll that much? Yeet. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly. I I think that's what really freaks me out so much about haunted dolls is like the potential it could be anything. It could be, but like I personally cannot stand the look of fake babies. Yeah. Like they just they creep me out with their eyes that never shut. Uh-huh. Or even worse, the ones that, that do, do shut. shut. 
like they just they freak me right out (laughs) yeah so waverly doesn't have any like baby dolls like that Mm -hmm. like she might have one but it's in the bottom of a trunk somewhere (laughs) they just they make my skin crawl (laughs) so she has tons of stuffed animals and you know i think i would feel better about her stuffed beaver being haunted (laughs) or like so for Christmas, she got a bunch of these, like, National Geographic animal stuffed animals Oh, thingies. that's cute. And they're super cute. And she has, like, an alligator, an owl, and um, the beaver. Yeah. They're all super realistic. But, like, I feel like I would be a much happier person knowing that the beaver was haunted <clears throat> than one of those fucking creepy dolls where their eyes go, Hello, <laughs> I'm awake. <laughs> I-, I would shit my pants. Yeah, 100%. And, like, I give all the power to the people who collect the big dolls, but fuck no. Mm-mm. Like, the China dolls? No. 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 Because the last thing I want to see running across my hallway <laughs> in the middle of the night is one of those motherfuckers that are haunted. Yep. I think the fuck not. <laughs> like, I have enough toys that go off on their own. Mm-hmm. I would rather die than watch a doll stand up and walk across the room by itself. <laughs> Yeah. No. No. No dolls. No dolls. No dolls. No. Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. If it has eyeballs that like are realistic and human like that can stare at me, it it just it does not come out of my house. And I'm sorry about that. But it just hides at the bottom right of the toy box. It really does. <laughs> and then it is the first thing put back if Waves ever pulls it out. <laughs> Well, like, sometimes I'll come down here and, like, her rocking horse is rocking on its own. Nah. I well, what's a rocking horse gonna do? Right. <laughs> like, cool, you just do you, boo. <laughs> I'm gonna hear that fucker coming up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> it would just teeter back and forth and fall back. Right? <laughs> oh. No, thanks. Mm-mm. Hard pass. Don't blame you. <laughs> like my tangent about dolls with eyeballs. Oh, Here for it. <laughs> Being a parent is so much fun. I love it. Eugene's relationship with the doll continued into adulthood. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. What people really remember is what they would probably define as an unhealthy relationship with the doll. He brought it everywhere. He talked about it in the first person as if it wasn't a doll. He was Robert. Okay. As if he was a living entity. Young Eugene began to blame mishaps on the doll. While this could have been laughed off as a childish storytelling, adults also started noticing odd occurrences. While he seemed like an ordinary cloth doll, it wasn't long before Robert was involved in strange and somewhat terrifying events. Of course he was. Of course. Why Why wouldn't he be? Like, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't. <sighs> the first hint that something out of the ordinary happened one night when Eugene was only 10 years old. He awoke to find Robert the doll sitting at the end of his bed staring at him. No. Moments later... His mother was awakened by his screams for help and the sounds of furniture being moved. No, 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 no. Oh, sorry. The sound of furniture being overturned in his bedroom. Okay, that's not better. That's not better. No. Yeah. (laughs) 
It doesn't get better. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> Eugene cried for help, begging his mother to rescue him. When she was finally able to wrench the locked door open, she saw poor Eugene curled up in fear on his bed, his room in shambles, and Robert the doll sitting at the foot of the bed. Oh, that's so creepy. He pointed and said, Robert did it. No. The same words he would later use many times throughout his childhood when something strange, mysterious, or destructive would happen. Oh, no. Like, I feel like this would be such a hard line to walk as a parent. Yeah. Because at one point you're like, there's no freaking way. Yeah. But then on the other one, you're like, if this is my kid, I should be stopping this behavior. Yeah. Well, like, sorry, when was this happening again? What year? Um, 1904. So there's not child psychiatrist that you could really bring your kid to to be like let's talk about your problems and see if maybe you're just blaming the doll for your actions no there was homes for those kids exactly so it's not like that was really an option if you no. wanted to keep your kid <laughs> i feel for his parents 100 percent Nobody knows for sure why or how this child's doll could actually wreak havoc on a child's bedroom or do anything at all because it was just a toy. But the weird and unexplainable didn't stop at that one occurrence. Eugene's parents would often hear their son upstairs talking to the doll and getting responses back in a totally different voice. Ooh. They would also hear Gene scream at night when they went into his room. So, and sorry, I, I you're totally going to change the subject. But like just a quick, I used to freak out my dad by like making different voices. <laughs> and while I was playing Barbies by myself, he'd be like, what other girls up there? And my mom would be like, it's just the least. <laughs> Sorry, just a fun tangent in the scary. <laughs> I could see that. I could see you having every single doll have their own voice. <laughs> I love it. Just fun and the creepy. <laughs> well, as long as it wasn't like demonic voices. No, it, it was another girl. So. <laughs> then you're fine. So they would also hear Gene scream at night. And when they went into his room, they would find Robert holding Eugene down on the bed. Oh, see, three feet is too much doll. Yeah. If your doll can restrain your kid, that is too much doll. I, you know what? <laughs> Any doll that looks like a human is too much doll. <laughs> Honestly, how many realistic dolls are there that are haunted? Okay, but like I've seen photos of robert the doll he's very clearly a doll you know what i mean like he does not look like he's humanoid but he's not it's too humanoid for me <laughs> i don't like it like his face isn't human enough if that makes sense not as much as like the porcelain dolls no but like does that make it creepier i think so I think the fact that he doesn't look like more human makes him look creepier. Like he's totally a demon. <laughs> it's all wrong. All freaking wrong. Objects then began to fly across the room and later his parents would find Eugene's other's toys mutilated. When they would try to discipline Eugene, he would usually tell them, I didn't do it. Robert did it. They reported seeing the doll speak and witness his expression change. Okay. 
giggling and sightings of Robert running up the steps or staring out of the upstairs windows were also reported. Mm-hmm. Robert continued to live with Eugene throughout his entire life. Well, I guess you can't just give it to goodwill. Oh, fucking right you can. <laughs> but they're already, like, they've got a bond. They're attached. They do. Like. I. We'll get there. But I'm really salty with Eugene's parents. Okay. Okay. I'm excited. We'll get to it. I'm very excited to hear One time, a plumber who had been hired to make repairs around the auto's home claimed to hear children's laughter, though no one was home at the time. When he looked around the room, the plumber noticed Robert the doll had moved from one side of the window to the other, seemingly on his own. The plumber swore that objects that had been in Robert's lap ended up on the other side of the room as if he'd thrown them. Okay. Okay, that's actually pretty impressive. How much energy does that take? Yeah. But, like, it doesn't say what objects, but still. Well, it is. Yeah. Yeah, that poor plumber. So, Eugene went away to college as an adult to study architecture at the University of Virginia for two and a half years. Robert, unfortunately, didn't accompany Eugene. Hey, there's other things to do while you're in college, right? Eugene went on to study painting at the Academy of Fine Arts in Chicago for three years. Besides playing with Robert during childhood, Eugene loved to paint. According to the family, Eugene took up a paintbrush before he learned to speak. He spent the following two and a half years working with the Art Students League in New York. From New York, he moved to Paris, where he established himself in a studio and met his future wife. Annette Parker. Okay. Oh, that's funny. We both have Parkers. Oh, yeah, we do. Oh, that's oh. weird. <laughs> it's because we're on the same wavelength. We must be. <laughs> While he was away at college and traveling, Robert had not been with Eugene. Thomas and Minnie Otto, Eugene's parents, did not get rid of Robert. Oh. Um, but eventually just put him in the attic. Okay. That. Seems like you're keeping a time bomb, but okay. Right? Well, like, if Robert's sentient, he's just going to be mad that Eugene left and, like, bitter that he's been holed up in the attic the whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm sorry, you're getting a one-way ticket to the dump. (laughs) Fucking get out. (laughs) What if it came back, though? That would be worse. At least you know where it is. It can't sneak up on you. We'll get there. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. Years later, Eugene's parents passed away, and then he moved back into his childhood home with his wife, Anne. Mm -hmm. Once he settled in with his wife in the family home, Eugene resumed his close friendship with Robert. Oh, no. Much to his wife's dismay. Uh Uh-huh. Eugene decided that the doll needed a room of his own and, a pla- and placed him in the upstairs room that had a window overlooking the street. Okay. Eugene created the room especially for Robert. He even furnished the room with child-sized furniture and toys for Robert. Eugene made Robert's room his studio and painted with Robert along his side. Okay. Like... 
I feel like Eugene's going a little loopy here. Like, there is something not right. Well, I guess, like, if the, if Robert's not terrorizing him, if, like, he's got his own space, if Eugene comes and hangs out with him, if, if this is a sentient doll that went from terrorizing and flipping furniture and throwing things to just chilling in a room and looking out a window and hanging out with his friend painting, like... I would definitely pick the lesser of two evils. Yes, this is true. Now, Anne felt uneasy with Robert in the house. And although she couldn't put her finger on it, she wanted Eugene to lock the doll up in the attic where he could do no harm. Fair. Eugene conceded. And as one could imagine, Robert the doll was not happy with the move. Mm -hmm. Soon, visitors to the home heard footsteps in the attic. The sounds of someone pacing back and forth, and devilish giggles. Oh, no. Neighborhood children reported seeing Robert watching from the front room window in the upstairs bedroom. You know, the one that Eugene made for him? Yeah, yeah. And told accounts of the doll actually mocking them as they walked to school. When Eugene heard this, he immediately went to investigate, knowing that he had locked Robert in the attic and there was no way he could possibly be sitting by the window of the upstairs bedroom. But to his shock, when he opened the door to the bedroom, there was Robert sitting in the rocking chair by the window. Oh, creepy. Eugene locked Robert back up in the attic several times each time discovering him again sitting by the window in the same upstairs bedroom. That's his room. I'm sorry. Like, that is... You have to accept that now. (sighs) Yeah. Moodle... (laughs) Moodle. Myrtle Reuter, who would later own the artist's house, said that a neighbor told her that Anne said that when Eugene would say or do something hurtful to her, he would tell her, I didn't do it, Robert did it. What?! Right? Like, what? Could you imagine Joey coming up and just, like, being a right turd to you? And then being like, I didn't do it, but I did it. Fuck that. Oh, my God. How, I, holy crap, Anne. What are you doing with your life? Yeah, it, it doesn't get better. Oh, no. It was during the 1940s that stories about Robert began to circulate. Unfortunately, Eugene Otto died in 1974 with Parkinson's disease. An article in the Sun Sentinel, written 10 years after his death, said that in the months leading up to his death, Eugene spent most of his time in the attic talking to Robert. So now, this is an interesting little tidbit that I found, but I didn't put it in my notes for some reason, was that Eugene actually ended up being such a spiteful human being that when he was alive, he found out that Anne's parents took him out of their will. Okay. So his in-laws didn't have him in the will. So in turn, he left everything to his sister instead of his wife. And his wife only walked away with the house because it was jointly owned. Wow. Like, what a spiteful man. I'm surprised he didn't just leave it to Robert. You can't leave property to items. Yeah, but like the contents. 
I'm surprised he didn't like at least attempt to. You know mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was reading that and I was just like, for real? Oh, Robert did it, probably. Yeah. So he essentially oh. left his wife with nothing. That's rude. Yeah. Anne owned the artist's house jointly with Jean, so after his passing, she sold it to a neighbor and friend, William Geyser. She gave Robert to Geyser and told him the doll was Eugene's best friend. Of course, he never had any other friends. When they moved into the house on Eaton Street, their 10-year-old daughter was delighted to find Robert the doll in the attic. But her delight ended Uh soon. (laughs) When she claimed that Robert was alive and the doll wanted to hurt her. Oh my god. She awoke often in the middle of the night screaming in fear, telling her parents that Robert had moved about in the room. Okay, that would take one time. One scream. Right? Like, this is one very lucky doll. If you think (laughs) about it. Yeah. Ugh. Yuck. Many believe that the origin of Robert's evil lies in the one who originally gave him to Eugene. The servant who worked for Jean's parents, you may ask? Or the tales of a mistress entrapping her deceased child spirit within the doll? Shivers. I, I have such a hard time believing anything besides this was just wrong place, wrong time doll. Well, it could also just be a demon. That's what I mean. Like, yeah, the that... doll just happened to be what a demon picked. Yeah. Well, and especially if, like, if it was situated in a house where it was like, I can just get stronger here because, like, even though like the parents aren't doing anything, the kid doesn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. I'm this kid's only friend. Yeah. And I will just feed off of him. Yeah. Totally. <sighs> so Myrtle Ruder became the owner of the artist's house after William Geyser and was Robert's caretaker for the next 20 years. Wow. At first, Reuter said that she didn't have any problems. She said that she would dress Robert in PJs and put him under the tree for Christmas Eve. Okay. Two men rented the house from Myrtle during the mid-1970s and said that they heard noises coming from the attic and children laughing and someone rummaging around. Okay. When they went upstairs to investigate, they noticed that Robert had changed positions. The activity became more frequent. They invited a friend over to see Robert now. Malcolm Ross said that he experienced a strange feeling when he was around Robert, describing it as a metal bar running down his back. Ross also described Robert changing facial extractions expressions oh i don't like that he described robert as looking like a child being punished and that as he talked to his friends about the room robert seemed to follow the conversation oh no yuck oh no 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 so myrtle and her husband sold the artist's house in 1980 she decided to take robert to her new home she brought it with her? Mm-hmm. Where she let him sit on the porch. Okay. You can retire here with me. Yeah. She said that it was after moving into the new house that strange things started to happen. Visitors swore they heard footsteps in the attic and giggling. 
Some claimed Robert's expression changed when anyone would badmouth Eugene in his presence. Wow. I wonder how often that was brought up. Like, who who knew Eugene? Right? Well, this was... Like, that's the third owner of the house. Mm-hmm. So, like, how many? How much is Eugene even being brought up? Maybe it's that fact that, like, Eugene and this doll were mm. creepily close. Maybe. Myrtle said Robert would move around the house on his own. And after 20 years of his shenanigans, she donated him to the Fort East Martello Museum in 1994, claiming that the doll was indeed haunted. Yeah. Key West Art and Historical Society Assistant Director Joe Pays spoke with Myrtle. She sat Robert down in a chair in his office and said, This is Robert. He's part of the Otto family, and I can't stand him being in my house anymore. Fair. Myrtle said that she locked Robert in a room after noticing that he moved on his own. After that, she said Robert locked her in a room. <gasps> oh, no. He's haunted, she said. When Pays, so Joe Pays, the director, yeah, suggested that she should keep Robert. No. Myrtle insisted that she wanted the doll out of her house and eagerly filled out the paperwork to donate him. The museum accepted the doll and its baggage, assuming Myrtle's claims were, of course, all nonsense. Yeah, yeah, but they did think that. However, almost immediately, museum employees reported their own inexplainable happenings with the doll. Oh, no. Myrtle died less than three months later. What? After Robert arrived at the museum, paranormal activity decreased in the artist's house, but substantially increased at the museum. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> it's crazy. I love these guys. Like, you should just keep him. You don't need to donate him. You just You're fine. Yeah. Do you even know what a haunting is? Fuck. So, Joe Pays noticed something different about Robert. Yeah. He changes expressions, guys. He fucking moves. He throws things. He's a little different for a doll. (laughs) He kept Robert in a small antique chair in his office. Pays said that when he looked at Robert, he stared back at him in an unchildlike way. Pace believed that Robert was moving the chair around and made a mark near one of the chair's legs to see if the chair was moving. Pace shared his office and his office mate, she did not like Robert and did not want to be in the same office as him. Eventually, Robert was moved to the museum's artifact storage. Yeah. (laughs) Robert stayed there for two years Visitors could come and see him by appointment only, and museum employees were so frightened of Robert that they would often suggest visitors come back to visit on a day that they were not working, or put the responsibility of retrieving Robert on a co-worker. (laughs) Okay, fair. I've definitely wanted to, like, avoid, like, Mm -hmm. maybe not dolls, but, like, if I saw somebody I didn't want to deal with, I definitely went and hid. Oh, and even if there's a job you don't want to do, especially, like, working in a museum, I'd be like, 
break time. Yeah. Sorry. I got some dusting to do now. Right? In the mid-1996s, a local ghost tour was encouraging guests to visit Robert. All these coworkers are probably like, you motherfuckers. <laughs> Could you not? Right? After requests for Robert increased, he was placed on display. Well, like, at the very least, then one person doesn't have to go get him every time. Right. Since Robert being on display, visitors have flocked to the museum to get a look at the mischievous toy. He has appeared on TV shows. He has had his aura photographed. He is a stop on a ghost tour. And he's inspired a horror movie. He has a Wikipedia entry and social media accounts. Fans can buy Robert replicas, books, coasters, and t-shirts, and the most adventurous can even volunteer to be locked in a room with Robert after dark. No. Why? Right? Robert the doll continues to taunt and scare those who come to view him, especially guests to the museum, who attempt to take his photo. Many have reported their cameras becoming inoperable when they try to take a picture of Robert, only to begin working again when they leave the museum. Robert the doll sits inside a glass case, but it doesn't seem to stop him from inflicting fear and discomfort to museum staff and visitors. Staff members report that Robert's facial expressions change. They hear demonic giggling and have even seen Robert put his hand up to the glass. Oh, no. Some examples of strange things that happened to Robert's visitors at the museum include the story of a couple who spent their honeymoon in Florida. After visiting Robert, they lost all of their vacation photos as well as their wedding pictures. For their first anniversary, the couple decided to visit Robert again. And this time they brought Robert peppermint candies and showed Robert the candy when they were alone with Robert. The lights in Robert's room went out for a minute. The couple felt that this was Robert's way of expressing his thanks for the candy. Okay. Yeah. Sure. David Sloan said that he had some strange experiences while doing research and writing his book on Robert. He said that he lost four hard drives and that computer techs were able to retrieve everything except the book manuscript. Oh, I'd be choked. Yeah. Backups of the manuscript also disappeared. More than one spirit medium also advised him to build a fireproof safe for his valuables while he was working on the book. Sloan was told that if Robert didn't approve of the book, he would give Sloan cancer. <clears throat> well, that's so specific. Right? Sloan also said that he was pulled from his bed, held suspended in midair, and that he had been levitated. Okay. Like, he done pissed off Robert. Sloan also founded the ghost tour in Key West that in 1996 that influenced Robert's move from museum storage to permanent display. Ooh, he's the dick that was sending everybody there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Jessica Nauman, manager of the artist house, put a decorative bowl of plastic lemons on the reception desk. I never understood that. The fake lemons? The fake fruit. Yeah, I get that. I just, I never understood it. You just need <clears throat> to add a splash of color. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the lemons suddenly started to disappear. Robert was eating them. 
Guests checking out would return them. They didn't say anything, but just put the lemons back in the bowl. <laughs> About a month later. I see Joey just grabbing these lemons. <laughs> He'd be like, oh, they're not real. <laughs> but like, you, you wouldn't get to the room with them. Well, maybe. You'd hope not. <laughs> they didn't say anything. Just put the lemons back. About a month later, a package arrived with no name, no note, and no return address. Just a lemon. <laughs> Months later, a guest asked if she had seen a letter to Robert at the Fort East Martello Museum. The letter was from a woman who found a lemon amongst her and her husband's belongings when they returned home from Florida. Hmm. She wrote that she and her husband had seen Robert several times before but never experienced anything negative. During their last visit, they stayed at the artist house in the turret site, oh, turret suite, below the attic room where Robert lived for many years. They decided to take a look in the attic and popped up into the hatch door. They took pictures thinking they might catch something paranormal on camera. The next day before checkout, they were doing some last minute shopping and she began to feel a pain start started running a fever and noticed a rash after arriving home a doctor diagnosed her with shingles oh her husband started to feel pain and was diagnosed with kidney stones what oh right when she was unpacking she found a plastic lemon wrapped up in one of her shirts oh no 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 she didn't know how it got into her suitcase she thought that robert was the cause of her and her husband's sickness she thought that Robert was punishing them for taking pictures of the attic without his permission. Mm. She mailed the lemon back to the artist house. Once the lemon was on its way back, she and her husband began to recover almost immediately. Holy. She requested that her letter be posted near Robert. Oh, so that he could read it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> Another story is from someone who said that they were following Robert's rules, the writer told Robert their name, asked permission before taking his photo, and thanked Robert. Later that night, their bottom lips swelled to twice its size, and they developed a rash on both their arms and hands that lasted for a couple of days. Wow. They looked up Robert on the internet and didn't find any information to suggest their rules were not followed. As they closed the tab, they noticed another tab open with no title on it. There was only one sentence on the page that they read. Oh, Do you no. want to take a guess? No, I can't. You did not say where you were from. What? Oh, my God. Oh, that is so freaky. Right? Oh. So, there's one positive letter mention. The writer was a woman who said that she had nothing but the best of luck after visiting Robert. The specifics aren't mentioned, but the woman expressed her appreciation and thanks to Robert. The letter goes on to refer Robert as a demon whose role is to teach people to ask permission. <sighs> Get a cat. Well, you know what? Like, if you're tempting fate, you may as well be polite. If you really want to think about it. Yeah, until you forget to say where you're from. This is true. <laughs> she goes on to say that Robert is specifically a demon in charge of good manners. Okay. You're not here for it? No. No, I never want to see this doll in oh, person. I ever. want to. No. We are going one day. Okay. I 
will not i will stay in a different hotel as you so well it's not in a hotel it's in a museum i understand that but it follows them i wasn't actually gonna talk to the doll what? you know, just walk past and look at it <laughs> come on <laughs> just give it the side eye my rule of life is don't tempt fate but you want to be in the same room is it yes that's too far no that that's close enough no that's too close it's lukewarm <laughs> you're dipping your toes but i'm not jumping in <laughs> so guess can and do write to him he gets probably one to three letters every single day says the museum they aren't typical fan letters though they're often apologies Many visitors attribute post-visit misfortunes to failing to respect Robert or even openly disrespecting him. Why would you openly disrespect them? Stupid. You're just dumb. You deserve your misfortune. All right. And then they write begging for forgiveness. Others ask for advice or to hex those who have wronged them. They have received more than a thousand letters, which they keep in catalog. Wow. Yeah. Like, what kind of advice is Robert the doll going to give you? You should expect matters from other people. Yes, but I gathered that from a quick Google search. I don't know. Well, I enjoy the hexing personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do they Honestly, ask them nicely? <laughs> I would assume so. That isn't even the best part. Okay. What's the best part? We'll get to it. Well, I'm waiting. Tell me. I know. <laughs> Robert also receives emails and homages. Homages? Homage. Homages? Okay. At some point, it became known that Robert has a sweet tooth. So people leave and send him candy. Once he received a box containing eight bags of peppermints, a card, and no return address. Exercising caution, the museum staff does not consume treats sent to Robert. Nope. Guests leave him sweets, money, and occasionally joints. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That is my personal favorite. They're like, dude, you need to chill the fuck out. (laughs) Just take, chill out, man. Right? So, those visiting are advised to mind their manners in Robert's presence. Visitors are urged to introduce themselves and where they're from, Ah. ask permission before taking a photo, and thank Robert before leaving. Those who send letters to the museum often address to Robert, detailing all the bad luck they've had since their visit. Among the misfortunes suffered by visitors who disrespected Robert, including job loss, divorce, financial trouble, and even sickness. Many letters conclude with the writer pleading with Robert to lift his curse. Wow. Again, this is why we don't have dolls. I couldn't imagine a doll causing a divorce. I mean, I am surprised it didn't cause at least one Anne and Hugh James, but... That's fair. I would have caught... Like, that would have been a deal breaker. Oh, <laughs> uh, so when I was reading, Anne didn't find out that she was taken out of his will until after he died. What a dick. Mm-hmm. Poor Anne. After living with this doll for how long? Right. So, now Robert the doll has long been the subject of speculation in the paranormal community. He is currently the main attraction of a ghost tour in Key West. 
Paranormal activity is still reported at the artist's house, including the apparition of a woman who appears in the garden. There's a theory that the feminine presence is Anne Otto, and that she's there to protect people from Robert. According to a report from October 25th, 2003, Eugene's birthday, a gathering of 80 people witnessed a blue orb come from the sky and through the guest house roof and appear to the crowd in front of the house. The orb went through the balcony and disappeared into the ground. Oh. The orb is said to have appeared again in October of 2012. Ooh. As a tour guide was sharing new information uncovered about the Otto's family. Oh, that's weird. Right? The orb reportedly circled his head for several minutes. Oh, that's too long. Right? Oh, I don't like that. Okay. Whether you believe it's a voodoo, a child spirit, Eugene Otto's energy charging Robert, or maybe that Robert is simply an antique doll with an eccentric caregiver... There is still a lot of unexplainable things that surround this doll, and ensure you mind your manners. That's for sure. Right? So I got all this information from Wikipedia, Atlas, Obscura, Ghosts and Gravestones, HorrorObsessive.com, and AllThat'sInteresting.com. And that is the story of Robert the Doll. That was amazing. Thank you for sharing that story. Of course. It was it was actually super interesting to read and it was really cool because while I was looking it up, so many of the stories had different parts that they focused on. Yeah. Like there was one that I was reading and it focused solely on their marriage. Oh. One part focused solely on his childhood and then like mm. after he was in the museum. So it was really cool to be able to actually sit and read, like, beginning, Details. middle, end of this guy's entire life. That is fascinating. Yeah. It was it was such a cool thing to get to research. That's awesome. All right, guys. Well, that wraps us up for R. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. And please make sure to leave us a review and check us out on social media and give us a five-star review that would be super awesome yes and don't forget to tune in next tuesday as we cover s Ooh, that's i'm so excited oh i am too all right and please make sure that if you have any questions concerns or you have anything you want us to cover make sure to email us at c4creepy at gmail.com all right thanks for listening bye Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for Creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for Creepy Podcast. Or on Instagram at C for Creepy Podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at cforcreepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at lexxa underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.